Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan, a fisheries biologist who works on restoring habitat for salmon and steelhead along the North Coast. And when your work is focused on understanding riverine habitats like mine is, big storm events can be a really exciting time to get outside and to see how water and wood and sediment interact. The most recent storms are no exception, And as a fisheries person, what really interests me is understanding where fish hold when stream flow is high and rivers are really full. One of the aspects of my work that's been pretty interesting is the relationship between rivers and their floodplains. The physical characteristics of a floodplain shape how water flows. Also, natural floodplains provide flood risk reduction benefits by slowing runoff and storing flood water. They also provide other benefits that are considerable. They benefit the economy, there are social benefits, and there are numerous environmental values that are often overlooked when local land use decisions are made. For some people, flooding is a nuisance, and in some instances, it really is. But for me, in most cases, flooding is an exciting circumstance where rivers and streams get to disrupt and reset a summer's worth of stagnation. So in honor of the rain and the swollen rivers, I want to share a couple of interviews that I collected in 2020. The first interview is with David Wright, who formerly worked for the Nature Conservancy and was involved with planning and implementing several restoration projects focused on the floodplains and estuaries of the Ten Mile and the Garcia River. So today I really want to talk to you about work that the Nature Conservancy in particular has been spearheading uh, restoration efforts focused on on the Mendocino Coast, and that is the work of restoring estuaries and restoring floodplain habitats. And um, maybe the best way to start is if you could help provide an explanation to us about why floodplains and estuaries are important habitats for salmon and steelhead. Yeah. um, I think uh, a good way to look at it is to kind of look at the evolutionary life history of salmon. And I know that sounds like a, a, a kind of evasive um, way to describe it or, or wordy, but I think that um, how to describe the importance of estuary habitat for salmon, uh, it's a good, way, a good way to see that is to picture how salmon have evolved. And over the course of like, you know, 10, 20,000 years, salmon were, or their ancestors were more trout-like fish, and they lived in freshwater habitats. But for salmon, their reproductive strategy um, is in numbers. They make lots of eggs, lots of babies, and they don't care for their young. In fact, they usually die after they... uh, lay their eggs and their their only contribution to the young after that is their carcasses are feed for the babies um, which is a complete different uh, life strategy or survival strategy strategy than humans have which is you know we have few young but we you know 
take good care of them and, you know, over a long period of time. So with that life history strategy, salmon need to make lots of eggs. And what they kind of evolutionarily discovered was is that they moved down into the water system that the low areas of river systems are more productive than the upper areas. And they soon evolved to the point where they discovered that if they actually went out into the ocean, there was even more feed out there than there was even in estuaries. And so consequently, uh, salmon evolved to be these what we call anadromous fish. And the reason that they go out into the ocean is particularly for the females to get huge. There's a lot more feed out there. And when they get big, they do what we call in fisheries, they increase fecundity. In other words, they just get big and they can make a lot more eggs. And that gives them uh, an edge over their competitors. So um, the reason for that long-winded explanation is to say that as they got down into the estuaries, they found much more feed. And that's because estuaries have... uh, more abundance of nutrients, of habitat, of water, of the species richness is greater. Um, And so there's more feed, there's more places for the fish to live. Um, This was not actually understood until fairly recently by fishery scientists, right? Um, And the way that it manifested, that thought process manifested itself around here was a focus on um, improving habitat in timbered areas, you know, in the upstream habitats, which is important. But uh, fishery scientists began to realize that really the most important habitat in any river system for salmon is the estuaries. And unfortunately, if you look at any coast, you know, our coast um, included, you'll see that that's the place where humans like to settle. I mean, it's good farmland, it's a good place to build a city, it's a good place to have a port. And so we develop those areas and they're the most valuable to us. So the Nature Conservancy has been engaging in a project, you know, all up and down the West Coast or, or, you know, an overall project strategy to try to work with landowners to increase the productivity of this estuary habitat. And in Mendocino County, what it means is uh, working with ranchers. Um, And this has been a little bit of a change for me because uh, my uh, past has been working in the fisheries area, but with timber. Um, And so now I'm working in more flatland environments that flood regularly and are actually influenced by um, you know, the ocean. And in the area of Mendocino County, the two projects that I'm working on specifically right now in terms of we're doing construction and um, enhancements is on the Garcia River and on the Ten Mile River. We have other, um, we have other projects in the mix or in the works, but those are the two main projects where I have funding and actual boots on the ground, as it were, doing work. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a term that's used in ecology a lot called productive 
could you explain to the listeners like what productivity, excuse me, productivity is, and talk a little bit about um, why an estuary or a floodplain is more productive than another type of freshwater ecosystem. Yeah, it's it's a little bit complicated. It and but not really. Um, it's not that complicated. Uh, productivity just means that there's no, more nutrients in the system, which means that um, you get what we call primary productivity, which also happens in the ocean, which is the autotrophs, the or the you know the plankton, and those kind of critters start to grow because there's fertilizer in the water, and in summer there's sunlight, and then you get all the critters, the you know, the trophic pyramid, the, the pyramid of life, the food web, the food web, you know, all those critters depend on that. Um, and that happens a lot in the estuary. You have ocean nutrients coming in from the ocean. You have land-based nutrients coming down and they're mixing. And especially during summer, when you get a long photo period, you know, all those things come into the mix and it makes for a good you know, makes good feeding opportunities for young salmonids. Usually these fish are about, you know, anywhere from two inches to 10 inches long. Now, the other thing that floodplains have, you know, outside of just estuaries, uh, when you're talking about floodplains, there's something else that uh, you can throw into the mix. And estuaries have usually have floodplains in them, but floodplains can occur in other places besides estuaries. Floodplains are those terraces alongside the channel that when during floods the, the uh, floodwaters come up, top the banks, and expand, add on to those what we call flood terraces or floodplains. Those are particularly important to Salmonids, uh, and especially in rivers like the Sacramento, but even in our local rivers, because when you get long periods of inundation or long periods when these areas are flooded, you get all these critters that um, hatch and evolve, uh, zooplankton, uh, d- different kinds of mycids, and, and, and I don't even understand the biology of it, but uh, a lot of critters hatch and live during that brief uh, period, like two to three weeks of immersion. And, and on top of that, what, and it, this is probably the most important, is that you have all these terrestrial invertebrates like worms and insects and stuff like that that basically drown and they become feed for salmonids. And especially if you consider these flood events, you consider the turbidity of the water, the visibility in the water is really poor. And so... The salmonids, which are normally sight predators, you know, they, they, they see things and they dart at them and get them. They now have to kind of like feel around on the bottom, more like a catfish, and find stuff to eat. Well, it's really helpful during these time periods when it's being flooded that there's dead bugs on the bottom. And they, they definitely take advantage of that. And in the research that we've done, uh, capturing tagged salmon when we know how much time they've spent out on those flood terraces during floods, we've seen significant uh, growth rates 
during that time period, which is contrary to what people had thought before, that they thought that flood periods were a time when these fish hunkered down and didn't do anything at all. But the reality is that they actually use flooding as a feeding opportunity and, and they benefit from it. Therefore, to benefit Salmonids, you need to have high-quality flood terraces and floodplains. Mm-hmm. So the floodplains not only function as a slow-water kind of refuge for fish during high flow events, but then it provides this cafeteria. For them to gorge on and get bigger, and then as we've talked in other episodes, the bigger that salmon is when it leaves the freshwater system and enters the marine environment, the better chance it will come back and lay all those eggs, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, When these flood events occurs, it's like opening the refrigerator and... Like you say, you know, we, we joke around in fisheries or within salmon management with, you know, when it comes to these fish going out to sea, size matters. The bigger, the better. So, and not only bigger, but just more robust. If they're well-fed, they're healthy, the um, period that they go through or the life history change that they go through to go out to the ocean, which we call smultification, which is the change in their entire salt processing structure within their bodies to to when they're in freshwater they have all these structures uh physiological structures to maintain salt when they go out to the ocean they need to evacuate salt from their system and they completely change their osmotic processes or their salt processing process processes within their bodies this is a um really demanding period for them. So they need to be really well fed for when they make the transition from the ocean or from the river to the ocean. Great. And then um, can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing in the Garcia River and in the Ten Mile River to help improve these types of habitats for salmon? Sure. Um, Our theory of change, as we call it, is that we, um, or, you know, basically, you know, you have to have some plan. How are we going to do this, right? And especially because a lot of what we're doing hasn't been done before, especially around here in this unique environment of these, what we call coastal lagoons, you know, uh, bar-built lagoons. Um, so we're starting in 10 Mile, we're building these structures, um, they're uh, structures that increase the amount of time uh, that fish can sp- spend on the flood terrace, it increases the amount of time that the flood terrace is inundated, and it also creates more structural habitat, you know, basically for fish in winter during that flood Uh, you know, that flooding period during winter. But what we're doing is that we have a really top quality monitoring program, an effectiveness monitoring program where we're doing dive surveys and we're running fish traps and we're applying pit tags and we're looking at growth rates during different periods of time. And we're using adaptive management 
to, you know, what we learn from, you know, this monitoring program to adapt what we're doing in 10 mile going forward and also to adapt what we're doing on the Garcia River where we're just, we're a couple steps behind, but we're going to emulate the same process on the Garcia River. So we're building and experimenting a little bit and watching what happens on the 10 mile and then we're going to expand more on 10 mile but at the same time we're taking what we've learned on 10 mile and applying it to the Garcia where we'll be building out at least 13 structures on the Garcia in the summer of 2022. Okay so these are complex they're they're designed by engineers wood structures that help um, create these specific habitat units that feed fish within the um, parts of the river that have that tidal influence, right? That's correct. And specifically in 10 Mile, the structures that we've already constructed in the summer of 2018, some of them are wood structures that force the river to flow up onto the flood terrace and that gives the fish access to the terrace. It floods the terrace more, but it also gives, as you were uh, talking about earlier, it gives the fish uh, protection during high winter flows. But then in addition to the wood structures that we built, we actually built these ponds that are only seasonally flooded. So in other words, they're connected to the channel and during most, throughout the year, except for winter, they just grow vegetation. They, you know, they're mostly grass uh, and they produce, you know, in the soil, they produce invertebrates, all the, all the bugs that fish like to eat. And then during winter and spring flows, when the fish are actually moving through that area of the system, they become flooded. And then the fish back off into these uh, backwater embayments and they feed and they get protection from high winter flows, which... Um, we didn't really talk about, but that's another real big problem for fish uh, during the winter you know, flooding period is that they just get bashed to death in channels that have no structure. So they need, they need refuge from what we call, well, what we call velocity refuge. And what is difficult about working in an estuary environment or in a floodplain environment? What or, or, or has, have you found this work to be difficult? And I guess the reason why I'm asking is because we haven't seen as much restoration occur in the estuaries. Um, and I have some you know, assumptions about why that might be, but I'm curious what you would say. Well, I think there's multiple uh, difficulties working in the estuaries and it's why folks haven't really done it, besides the lack of knowledge, uh, you know, until recently our understanding of the importance of these places hasn't been that great. Um, but there's, you know, there's human-caused problems. I mean, um, in the sense that this is really valuable land. And like, to use an example of my own career, I, I worked a lot, uh, in, you know, upstream of these areas, you know, doing habitat restoration where we were back in the woods and whether it was a timber company property or um, JDSF property, there wasn't a lot of valuable structure back there that you really had to watch out for, right? If the 
river, if you put in a structure and the river changed course a little bit, the landowner might lose a few trees or something like that. But there wasn't a lot of liability associated with, um, you know, working back in the woods there. But now you're out on someone's ranch and, you know, if you divert the river and all of a sudden it's, you know, it, it, it takes a new path across the farmers, the ranchers, you know, valuable pasture. I mean, that's a big deal, right? So what that works out to is that when we worked back up in the woods, we didn't have to use what's known as engineered structures. You know, we basically could just put wood in the creek and if it looked good and, you know, based on our, um, you know, professional knowledge, you know, we could, we could work like that. But now we have to have hydrologists, we have to have engineers, because we want to get the habitat features that we know these fish need but we really can't let it happen by chance. I mean, we really just can't go, yeah, let's just dump a bunch of wood in the creek and, you know, it'll all be good. I mean, I have to protect uh, Maggie Smith's ranch up there in 10 Mile, um, you know, because she needs to make her living from it, right? Um, and there's also, you know, the difficulties also come from, the, you know, the power of what's going on down there. I mean... When you're down at the bottom of a watershed, I mean, that's the collection point of the energy coming down through the entire system. Um, so there's a lot of difficulties, you know, there's ocean influence and stuff like that. But um, I don't know, I probably haven't covered them all, but it's a lot more difficult environment to work in. Yeah, so you have to take multiple factors into consideration when you're working in, in an environment that's really dynamic and that's relied on by lots of species, including people. And I think that often is one of the biggest challenges with all restoration is finding a balance of what works for others that rely on the same types of land um, and resources and that allows for the fish to continue their life cycle in a way that is, you know, sustainable. Yeah, and I should say, too, that because these areas are so important to society, to all of us, that the permitting processes, the agencies, the scrutiny that we get from them is just, you know, 10 times more. Mm -hmm. And I'm not griping about that. I mean, that's important, right? People, folks have to look at it. They have to make sure we're not going to do harm. Um, but it does make what we do much harder. We ha we need to um, do a lot more assessments. We need to uh, do full engineering. I mean, we actually have to come up with you know engineered plans that have an engineer's stamp on it, and it has to be approved by you know the various folks from the different you know agencies concerned with this stuff. So uh, it's not only more difficult, but a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, realm to work in. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, <laughs> it is so important. Yeah. So thanks. I, I'd like to talk a little bit, um, if we have time, just about the timeline of, of what we're doing. Yeah, go for it. Um, on 10 mile, uh, we, um, in 2018, we did our first four uh, habitat structures, including that big backwater pond, which is about the size of a football field. Um, and then this summer, <clears throat> we're, we're embarking on another phase, and this is on the South Fork of Ten Mile River, um, of that specific project, 
where we're going to build out four or five more structures. Um, and this time we're going to experiment with living log jams where we're actually going to, um, we don't pile drive, but we sink logs into the river using this special uh, vibrating device that you can hook up to an excavator. But then we're going to intertwine that with alders that we kind of pull over with an excavator, but not kill them. Right, so they're pulled over and they're they're actually pinched in the um, in the logs that we sink into into the substrate. So we're hoping to have these living log jams that will um, expand the flood terrace. So then that's uh, going to happen th this coming summer, and then the following summer, the summer of 2021, we actually got a private foundation grant to. Uh, do a large project on the main stem of 10 Mile. Now, for us, this is going to be interesting uh, in terms of the engineering because it's a, an order of magnitude larger. Basically, there are three forks to the 10 Mile River, and all of those forks uh, are about the same size. So we've been working on the south fork, but when we get onto the main stem, that includes the two other forks of 10 Mile, all the all the flow produced in the two other forks of 10 mile, which is, you know, the middle fork and the north fork. Um, so the stream power there will be twice as much as what we've been working on on the south fork. So this is going to be kind of like a new level of engineering for us. And we're uh, looking forward to it, but we're also a little bit apprehensive. And then, of course, as, as I was talking about um, earlier, on, in the summer of 2022, uh, hopefully, if all goes well, we will start 13 um, major structures on the Garcia River estuary. And presently, we're working on uh, all the permitting that I was talking about that takes like a year to go through. And we also have to do some design modifications on the designs that have already been produced. And that was Dave Wright, a local fisheries biologist and former project manager for the Nature Conservancy. If you're just tuning in, I'm Anna Halligan. This is the Ecology Hour. And tonight we are talking about floodplains and floodplain restoration and the importance of these wetland habitats for salmon and steelhead. Earlier in the program, I mentioned that I recorded that interview in 2020, and Dave mentioned that there was restoration planned in the Garcia River in 2022, and I just thought I'd give a quick update that that restoration has occurred. I haven't had a chance to go out and see the restoration work on the Garcia River, but I've heard really good things, and based on the work that Dave and his partners completed in the 10 mile, I have reason to believe that it's probably some pretty exciting stuff. Before I share my next interview, I would like to give a quick update about this year's salmon run. If you've listened to me on the Ecology Hour before, you know I like to share some of the really preliminary numbers of fish that have been observed moving upstream in the rivers. And so there's two locations where I can collect data from the agencies that are conducting monitoring. Um, one is up in the Upper Eel River at the Van Arsdale Fish Ladder, 
And it looks like the Chinook salmon run is um, over. They haven't had any Chinook movement since December 15th. And the season total for salmon was 277 upstream migrants. They've counted 14 steelhead at the fish ladder this year. And that run will continue throughout most of the winter. And then the other place where I'm able to get information about salmon is on the South Fork of the Noyo River. There's another monitoring location there. And so far, um, there have been about 155 coho salmon that have been observed at that monitoring station. And it's assumed that the upstream migration of coho in the South Fork Noyo River is probably largely done for the year as well. And it's just important to note that these are preliminary numbers. It's just the number of fish that are counted at one location. And it doesn't necessarily reflect the total number of salmon that are moving up these systems. Those numbers get calculated later in the year and involve some mathematics that are more complex than I can explain. Since my last interview ended with a discussion about restoration on the Garcia River, I thought I would share another recording that I collected in 2020 with um, Isaac Rios, who is a member of the Manchester Point Arena Band of Pomo Indians. Isaac has also worked in the field of restoration. He is a volunteer firefighter, and he has been involved in coordinating a youth summer camp for tribal children. One of the things I really appreciated about talking with Isaac was learning about his perspective on how we can all work together in taking care of the land. So let's turn to that interview, which begins with an explanation of the original name of the Garcia River. Oh, um... Well, the actual indigenous uh, name to the Garcia River, Garcia River was uh, called uh, Pidaha, which means uh, river mouth. Uh, Pidaha means a river, and then Ha means mouth. And uh, if you look at the river itself, you know, you got the headwaters, you know, going towards uh, Hyogville, I believe, going all that area of the water, basin back there. Then it, all the water flows west, going to the ocean. And, uh, and you got the villages that are once there going towards the headwaters because uh, the reason why is all the resources were so rich out there. You got the can oak trees. You got all the nice berry bushes that grow out there, you know, the hazel bushes that grow out there, all the nice mushrooms. Anyways, all the resources thick, nice game out there. And so the salmon would go up river to go fish way up there. I mean, actually it was fun, I should say. And so a lot of rivers are out that way. And so you come down to go got up in the ocean, they seen them out the river, you know, in Pinaha. So they, you know, they all the land, how they seen it, you know, mm-hmm. so that's how connected they were. And so yeah. um, to this very day, there's still a lot, a lot of us that do call that reference to uh, Piraha, you know, so, you know, it's just good to hear, to bring that name back, you know, and, uh, you know, to actually, you know, hear that from actually coming up from our young ones here too, and a few of our young ones that still call it that, you know, that start calling yeah. it that as well. So <laughs> that's good, you know, and, and a little history behind that is, uh, you know, the I guess it was back in was it eighteen thirty eight there was a Spaniard that came here by the name of uh, Rafael Garcia. So he set up a ranch here along the river right there going towards 
you know, the Mob River right there, uh, going, actually can head towards Manchester, you know, the little town of Manchester. It was that area where Sterner properties at, and he had a ranch there, and I guess until, like, I want to say, like, the maybe the 18, I want to say, like, maybe 1840s or something like that, uh, late 1840s, he ended up moving, moving away because uh, all the, you know, big old, you know, log and boom was starting to happen, all the gold rush, and, and there was a lot of uh, stuff going on. He tried to sell and claim the property, but, you know, the American government was, you know, pretty much coming in power of the state, you know, and so he couldn't claim his property, so he pretty much just moved away and then it became just one ownership and ownership of that, of that whole property around the area of the land around there. So, uh, that's the reason why the Garcia, the Garcia River name uh, came from was a Spaniard who came here his first contact uh, amongst the indigenous people from what I believe was mm. in 1838 and had establishment here. And uh, so uh, before that, uh, you know, it's you know, called Pidaha. It's always been known that. And to this very day, there was actually village sites. There was an old, the old last village site um, that was recorded by anthropologists was called Pidaha. So the anthropologist who referenced it and, you know, studied it and did research behind it, uh, actually talked to the informants and everything, you know, referring to the language of these village sites. Um, I believe his name was uh, Samuel Barrett, and, you know, he's written about it and put all his notes together, you know, drawn out little, talked about location, you know, the, the, you know, the layout of the land. And so forth and so like you know there's been written documentation and recorded that you know the last village site here amongst our people amongst the Bokea tribe Bokea people I should say which is you know the indigenous name to actually our tribe it's not in the church of Banapoma Indians you know um, the actual mm-hmm. indigenous word refers to our people with Bokea meaning you know which is the come up on the word uh, Boka meaning the west water which is referring to the ocean so and there's that territory right there. We reference to our territory, and you know, the Pidaha was the last Volcano village, and so uh, there's a lot of history there too. You know, um, with that, you know, before my uncle I had an uncle, you know, he, he told me some stories as well. He told me a few stories with the land here, and uh, he told me about Pidaha. He was like, you know, he was in his 80s before he passed away, but. You know, it's good to hear the story before he passed away, you know, about the land here, the actual uh, indigenous name to the to the land, you know, like how we've seen the land, you know, how they know my school grandpa or, you know, how his dad seen the land as well. So, you know, it was good to hear all that and hear the whole stories, you know, and uh, pretty much if I think, you know, there's a lot of disconnection from the land with a lot of, uh, you know, California tribes, but I think another way that connection can be brought up is if, uh, the stories get brought back, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of hard to get the stories to bring the stories back, you know, so, mm. you know, because you don't know too many people that know the language or the stories nowadays, you know, so um, in order for the, the, that connection to get brought back to the land, you know, uh, the stories have to come back, you know, along with the language. And so, and that's where the struggle is at right now, you know, but um, we're real fortunate here, even like, you know, just a couple other tribes, you know, that uh, identify, you know, their lands and indigenous names well around here, but, you know, it's good to hear that, you know, and uh, it gives us a sense of identity as well, you know, so um, that's yeah. pretty much the his- history, you know, I got behind that, uh, the word uh, Pitaha. 
That's so interesting. Right. And, and, and really, that's part of the reason why I asked you to be on the show, and um, we're hoping to actually interview some other local tribal members on some future shows as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I myself will admit that I feel like I don't know a lot of the stories that, you know, predate written history about the relationship of people with the land here on the Mendocino Coast yeah. and well, specifically um, it's, it's with salmon. Because, yeah. uh, well, to, to, to talk about uh, it's hard to hear the stories because a lot of the uh, traditions were old traditions, you know. Like the language mm-hmm. was taught orally in the home, you know, and that's how the language was passed down back in the old days, you know. And so, like, uh, then you go to the fire, if you got, you know, if there's a lot of, you know, action and a lot of, you know, um, connection to the land where, you know, you got, you know, a couple of native boys, you know, hunting and fishing every season, you know, and they got that connection of the driving off the land, you know, them stories are going to be there because they're going to know where to go. You know what I mean? You know, when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, living off the land because they heard the stories. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But, yeah. but you know what I mean? It's hard, in a day and age, it's hard and technology made us lazy and stuff. And, you know, and some of us, you know, got blinded and sidetracked by, you know, want to be a part of the, you know, local economy. I don't know, thriving casinos or whatever, you know. So it's like, you know, uh, we, a lot of us lost track of all that. But there's a few of us that are left that didn't, you know what I mean? And, and it's hard for us, like, I guess you could say grassroots you know, grassroots people or grassroots native to get support because, you know, everybody's caught up in a trending world, you know, everything's a trend, everybody wants to be a part of it rather than finding out who they really are, you know, and and uh, one way you can totally find out if you're native, you're indigenous people, the only way you can find out who you really are is is, is uh, bringing that connection back to the land, you know, and, and try to learn that language that goes to that land and you can start finding answers who you are then. And, you know, and maybe you'll find a sense of purpose. You know, that's what I feel anyways, you know. Uh, you know, I feel like uh, our purpose should be, you know, trying to keep the waterways clear, you know, trash and everything so the fish should come back. Because, like, right now, you know, we've got the what, supermarket shutting down, I guess. You know, people on shelves are empty right now, lack of, you know, lack of food or whatever. Now, but, you know, we've got the reds here. we still got the, you know, the, the deer still, you know, moving around the hills. you got the fish still coming up to the river to spawn, you know. I mean, to me, I'm back home and back at peace, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was even thinking about that. I am kind of a hobby herbalist, and I was looking through my closet, and I thought, oh, man, all the medicine I need is right here. You know, it's all it's all right here. <laughs> it's all came from yeah. the woods. Um, well, that's, yeah, I really appreciate that. So I, I'm curious, I, well, I know that you um, have helped coordinate and have been putting on a um a camp for i think mostly for children right each year to help yeah well it's teach for those youth. old traditions yeah yeah so can you uh, talk a little bit about that like what are some of those traditions that you have been able to you know learn about and how are you um passing those along to the next generation well just pretty much going on to the river and there and uh Pretty much going to light the fire, you know what I mean, and, and uh, you know, I'm saying, you know, pretty much, like I said, keeping that connection to the land, going on there on your own time, and you know, lighting that fire, and then I bring, I bring my son down there, and I, I bring my old boy, you know, he's, you know, he's getting, he's getting of age, and you know, and you know, you got to kind of keep him on track that way he doesn't fall off track, you know, and mm. one way of doing that is, uh, you know, try to keep him, you know, outside, pretty much. 
you know, so I've taught, you know what I mean, like how to, you know, you know, you use the throw line, you know, the fish, you know, the old way, how we used to, you know, do in the old days, and you knock the rocks, fish with the throw line, you know, and, and, uh, she's like, you know, wrap her, get one line, wrap, you know, a piece of driftwood around it, wrap around a line, and, you know, just have your little sinker, your rock, whatever, with a hook on it, and just let it go in the ocean, that's it, float in the waves, in the waves, and, you know, there'd be your, you might get a link caught or something, you know, but, also throw oh, a line in the river, you know, teaching my, my boys how to do that. Boys and, uh, you know, my little cousin and a couple more cousins yeah. and stuff. And also showing them right now, um, you know, what time, you know, what time of season when the, the fish do come up to spawn, you know. And and I'm over here at home right now, my, my youngest, but we were down there all day yesterday watching the fish spawn, and it was neat, the, the steelhead spawn. And it was, you know, good to see that. Now my son knows he's six years old. Now he knows to, where to go. You know, and you right. know, that's, that's culture. That's culture. You know what I mean? Because you still, you still have that connection to the land. You know what I mean? What, what mother gives, and so, and then uh, you know, every summer we had, you know, I was put on a youth camp. I wasn't, I'm not able to do it this summer, but for five years I did a, a youth camp. You know, where you know, we had some tribes, from, a few tribes in California, throughout California, come and do a cultural exchange, share like you know, stories and songs with each other, and you know, had had some pommel feather dancing and. Uh, a little bit of basketry and some archery and some kayaking. And uh, last year at uh, was it Pat Higgins come from you know the Eel River Recovery Project come and do some snorkeling surveys with the kids. Show them how to do oh, surveys, great. where to go to yeah, where to go uh, snorkel around to spot the fish, to see the fish and where they're rearing at and so forth. It was pretty neat. You know, like a couple of kids that took interest to it. You know, you know, yeah. it was good to see. And so. Um, you know, and pretty much is, you know, trying to make your way alive, going out there, picking up trash, you know, planting trees. I had my little uh, nephew on there planting on Douglas fir trees. I had my sons, my two boys, and a couple of little relatives of mine, my nephew, planting some redwood uh, seedlings down there that are still growing. There's like four of them that are still growing. And uh, and right there, it just gave a little bit of shade to the river right there. And, you know, the steelhead are coming around, you know. So, you know, it's part of traditions, you know, we did some, uh, Atlatl demonstration, you know, we'd be able to throw atlatl. You know, as far as I know, archaeologists, he did a survey, he did some research around here. I think it's from the, uh, he worked for the BLM. We would do, I was doing a survey with them over there in, uh, on the Stern of the Public Lands. Talk about, we used atlatls, like, you know what I mean, years ago at one time, you know, mm-hmm. to hunt the elk, you know, because the elk were plentiful around here as well, you know, and uh, the tule elk. So, you know, we shot yeah. out to hunt them. And I was like, whoa, you know, and whoever would have thought, you know, and you think about that, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, stories, there's research about how the Roosevelt Elk and Tule Elk were around here at one time, you know, so, you know, and here's stories of the old logging days in the 1850s, 60s, you know, all the elk were around here. And so it does, you know, add up to the, to hear the stories, you know, to hear the little, you know, scientific proof that they have to verify all that. And mm-hmm. so, uh, <laughs> So stuff like that, you know, to stuff I brought, you know, that needs to be brought up to pretty much keep the traditions alive. You know, even just coming down, like I was thinking on a fire, you're like, you know what I mean? Just doing a little prayers. I hear, like, I think my son's on there, I was saying, and uh, now he's starting to help me light the fire, you know, and that's part of passing that tradition down, you know, and one way to pass tradition down is keeping the fire lit among, amongst your, your homelands, you know, so, you know, this is, this is his homelands, you know, and 
coming on a vacation to come down to this camp where next to our ancestral watershed, lighting that fire, doing little prayers and, you know what I mean? And do a little stewardship there, keep the river clean. You know, that's, that's pretty much culture, you know, <laughs> to me in my eyes. Right. Yeah. You know, no, and, absolutely. You know, and you're still fishing, you're still gathering with the seasons, you know, and, you know, that's who, pretty much who we are, you know, and, and, but it's sad to say that, uh, a lot of us lost connection with that, right. you know, and do, well, you know, it's, it's gotta be harder now too, just based on yeah. what you're saying, like the elk aren't here and the salmon return every year, but not in the numbers that they would have, you mm-hmm. know, prehistory. Um, and so, you know, I'm kind of curious as you're saying, you know, how much do you think, changes in our environment have affected some of that kind of um, disconnectivity with the land and uh, with the resources. Some of the uh, the logging, you know what I mean? Excess logging that took place, um, you know, on the watershed there, you know? And, yeah, uh, we've talked a lot about that on previous episodes, um, you know, and, about uh, the impacts of logging. Yeah, the impacts of logging and stuff like that, and... Uh, you know, I know there's rules and regulations now with, uh, you know, the, uh, the other agency, North Coast Water Quality Control Board. Uh, they put regulations on the farmers now, you know, and they could have the water trial. They had a water trial so far away from the river banks, you know, all that stuff, which is good, you know. Right, but right. Before in the past, though, we all, we all know that before in the past, farming had a big impact on, you know, the survival of, uh, you know, the coho salmon, Chinook salmon, you know, so... That had a lot of, you know, impact as well, you know, and because, you know, you got the old, that that water runoff that happens from all the fishies from the cows throughout the years, you know, and that tends to take an impact on the water quality, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and then you got, you know, then like I said, the logging too, you know, I got all that water when it comes winter, you know, starts to rain, got all that sediment, sediment coming down and goes down, you know, to the river banks and, and, and causes erosion. And we, and we know the story happens after that. <laughs> you know, right. the levels start going up and down, you know, so, so you know, yeah. it's all for the There's, fish. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, and, and even beyond logging, because, you, you know, you mentioned ranching, but just, just development overall really has had big impacts on our salmon populations. Um, and one of the things we've talked about on the show, too, is that, you know, in some ways we're really fortunate here on the Mendocino coast because we do still have, even though our forests have had a lot of impacts, we still do have a lot of intact forests. And one of the, the other messages that we've conveyed is just, you know, as far as coho salmon in particular go across the, all the Northern California coastal watersheds, our Mendocino coastal populations are, um, although they their numbers are far lower than they would have been historically, they are somewhat stable, and there's a small trend that they are um, actually, you know, doing better, you know, rather than doing worse. So every year, this year is probably not the best example, but we're slowly seeing small improvements in the numbers of fish that are coming back year to year. And I like to think that that has to do a lot with the rural nature of our 
area and the fact that we still are a pretty small population, um, you know, we're, we were clusters of small communities along the coast. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it is. Right. I mean, it's still, there's a long road ahead in the world of salmon recovery, but Mendocino seems to be, um, a little bit of a stronghold for our salmon. They're still coming back every year. They're all wild. Um, and you, and when you compare the numbers that the agencies have been collecting over time, rather than seeing a trend arrow going in a downward direction, we are seeing it go up. But again, it's, it's small, small improvements. Um, we still have a lot to do. What do you think... Um, you know, just I know you've worked in restoration um, before, and so I'm curious what you think we need to do to bring back healthy populations of salmon. Uh, living on water, I know it's not, it's not anybody's fault, but that'd be nice to have a little more water so they can get at river more to spawn, you know? You know, rather yeah. than just spawning like, you know, two and a half miles up river, they didn't get up there further more, you know? So that water needs to come down more, and then, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe plant somewhere <clears throat> trees, maybe along the river, like river trees. You know, Douglas fir trees. You yeah. know, because you know, because I see like around here, like you know, like what the roundhouse is at, or here in the rancheria here. Uh, there's not really that many river trees around there, you know. So I think you know, there needs to be more river trees coming down. You know, not too far from the mouth of the river, but I know they got river has property and everything. Oh. And you can't. I'm trying to tell them very highly not manage your land, whatever, but, you know, there needs to be more trees, I should say, you know, to actually stabilize banks, too. And, you know, right. give it a, yeah, give it a little habitat to the fish. Because I, I, the ones I planted, you know, are still growing, you know, and, uh, you know, by the time I die, you know, these probably, I don't know how, how big they'll be, 20 feet, you know, 15 feet tall, I don't know, but. <laughs> right, right. That's. That's something else we've talked about on the show, too, is just that because of the historical waves of logging, a lot of the trees in our forest are relatively the same age. And, um, and, and that would not, that's not typical of, uh, of a, a conifer forest, you, you know, what, and what a lot of, you know, kind of land managers today are trying to do is to create forests that have more diversity in the types of age classes that we have with our trees. So planting young trees is really important, I think, um, as well as having trees fall into the river to help create those special habitats that fish hold in, those pool habitats, or to slow water down during winter flows when the the river's force is, is so mighty that the fish actually, you know, need a slow water habitat to, to stay protected. I guess kind of wrapping up, um, I'm curious if you have any, you know, other, like, stories or um, you know, messages to to share about just about what salmon mean to the Manchester Band of Pomo Indians, and um, you know, if, if you know how um, 
can those of us who are not Native people learn more about the cultural significance of salmon to Native people? Uh, well, like I said, you know what I mean? Like there's like a, like a, well, I didn't say earlier, but to be honest, uh, there's, you know, there's like over a handful of us that still fish, you know, and gather whatever, you know, from the river and the land. And uh, so it's like to us, you know, there's, we still consider it important, you know, and, uh, you know, it sucks, you know, that we have to get a fishing license, you know, to fish our own river and all that. But uh, there's been a way that maybe we could figure something out to where, you know, we need that, we need to get that, uh, you know, that, that take from the river, that wild take from the river to, to keep that take the river alive. And, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe one day to, you know, to bring that sign ceremony back, you know, and, and that way more of the next the youth and the coming generation could actually, you know, carry that on and keep the connection alive, you know, but it's not going to happen overnight, you know, and, but to us, you know, that, that means like, you know, we got to keep that alive is by going out to the river and, you know, doing our part, you know, keeping that river clean. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, I believe that the message I just want to, to give is, uh, Pretty much, you know, have more respect. I know there's a lot of, you know, littering going on in these rivers and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, and I do it myself. So, like, you know, I do it myself. Like, maybe volunteer. To ever take a time of the day to volunteer, do a trash sweep along their nearest watershed to help keep these rivers clean. So, you know, the fish come back in better numbers or they won't have a problem coming back. Uh, I got a friend who does that over there in the Russian River. Uh, my friend, uh, Casey Carr, uh, he's at the Queen River Alliance. Every day he's out there, you know, doing, like, he's collecting hundreds of, you know what I mean, 200 pounds of trash, you know, a day or whatever, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, gets what I see gets kind of frustrating because people just littering out there all, all the time, you know, so, but he's still out there. And uh, he said he's seen some fish, you know, coming back and swimming around, and so some of the hard work does pay off. So uh, just pretty much, you know, try to get into and dial in with the land around you and uh, try to keep the nearest watershed clean. And, you know, if you have time, go out there and volunteer, you know, and you pick up trash, you know, and, and uh, you know, give do your part to the land, you know, give back instead of just taking all the time. That's you know, such so. a good message. I like, I mean, I think you're right. Like, how can any of us respect something if we don't have a personal connection to it? And volunteering is a great way to establish yeah. that connection. Yeah, I, my, oh, my friend Casey, yeah, my friend Casey from the Clean River Alliance, he said he'll get like, he'll get like a volunteer group. Like, you know, sometimes I know Sunday, he'll get like maybe four people will show up, he'll get eight people that shows up, you know, but the thing is, there's people out there, you know, around it that take a day after time, you know, to keep that river clean. So, you know, yeah. to me, that's, that's a big effort. You know, if you want to see change, you know, in your own travel, you know, community or amongst, you know, your travel land, wherever it's got to start back home, you know, so, you know, so it's like, you know, in order for change to happen, it's got to happen in your own backyard, you know, and so it's like, you know, by trying to get active here at the river and give a voice and trying to be involved, you know, even to a full extent, you know, it, I think it would motivate me in some of these people next generation, you know, to get involved as well. So uh, in order for that to happen, though, there has to be, you know, 
example, you know. So I try to do my best to try to be a good example on that, you know. Be an advocate, be more of a, try to be a steward to the land, you know, because I volunteer around here and, uh, you know, do trash sweep in the river, like I was saying, do trashing some on the res and, and try to do my part, you know. That's all I could do. So, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe I could uh, inspire somebody in the community, you know, to actually do the same. That was Isaac Rios with the Manchester Point Arena Band of Pomo Indians. And he was talking about restoration and stewardship of the Garcia River. Also, in the first half hour of the show, I interviewed Dave Wright with the Nature Conservancy about floodplain and estuary restoration that's occurring in the 10 Mile in the Garcia River. And that is all I have for tonight. I want to thank my guests for sitting with me and allowing me to record them and to share these interviews. And I want to thank the listeners for tuning in. Thanks for supporting Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We stream live at kzyx.org and can also be found on Facebook. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.